Greetings from Asbury Park. That's something I've always wanted to say, and what an honor it is to be recording my 100th episode of my podcast in beautiful, sunny Asbury Park, right on the Atlantic Ocean, at arguably one of the greatest rock photographers of all time, Danny Clinch's fantastic transparent gallery. And I am so excited to bring you my special guest for episode 100, the mighty Max Weinberg. Of course, the legendary rock and roll Hall of Fame drummer for over 47 years with Bruce Springsteen in the E Street Band and 16 years with Conan O'Brien, Late Night. When Max is not touring with Bruce, he is very busy touring with his own bands over the years. Right now, you can see the Max Weinberg jukebox playing this summer and this fall everywhere. So let's go inside and let's sit down for episode 100 with my special guest, the mighty Max Weinberg. In Candy's room, there are pictures of heroes on the wall. To get to Candy's room, had a walk, darkness at Candy's hall. So I think it's only proper to welcome you today, not just as Max or Mighty Max, but Mr. Commissioner. I mean, many people yeah. <laughs> may not be aware of your recent appointment to the Delray Beach, Florida Planning and Zoning Board. That's right. I am. Yes, you can address me as, you know, Commissioner. Is it Mr. Commissioner? Mighty Commissioner. Mighty Commissioner, Mighty Your Honor. I wasn't sure if, if, if well, I you Neil, know, I didn't know how it works. Actually, so. the way our city of Delray Beach the government there works as you have a city commission, which is like a council, and they're actually commissioners. I'm a board member of the planning and zoning, which is something I've had an interest in for probably 40 years, mostly on the other side of the table mm -hmm. in applications in, in, in various jurisdictions, whether it was in Los Angeles, Arizona, Connecticut, New York City, Florida, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, right, right. you know. So I kind of knew the issues and a lot of it is, uh, it's very interesting to me because it has to do with where do you see a city 20, 30, 40 years in the future where you can really affect it based on the comprehensive plan that all cities are mandated to have. So I'm not sort of a Johnny come lately to it. I've been involved in these issues for probably the last 40 years. Mm -hmm. And now at the ripe old age of 70, I'm able to use the knowledge and put it into practical use. I just like to check in anyway with every guest about the pandemic and, and everybody's fine. I know you've weathered it, you hung in there. You did spend five wonderful Monday nights for all the Bruce fans, to, thanks to Backstreets, and shout out to Chris for putting it together and, and yeah. answering all those questions. But how was that whole experience for you? Like you said, when you walked in, I haven't been out much. I mean. Well, thank God we seem to be seeing some daylight. Florida, of course, where I live, mm -hmm. apart from businesses just being closed, you know, we had quite a difficult time convincing people that it was a real thing mm -hmm. for much of it, particularly in 2020. I remember I did three dates, one in January, one in February, and March. March 7th was the last time I played. It was in a private event in the Bahamas, mm -hmm. and, and COVID had just you started to really think that this was more than a flu. And I realized, and of course we were very lucky, Becky, my wife and I, and, uh, and, and our family, 
to avoid getting sick. Although I think I had it in the beginning, to tell you the truth. I got very, very sick right after I came back from that last job. It's not surprising. My, my, you were on but flight. I had symptoms yeah. of just like a, a bad dry cough, mm-hmm. you know. And, and after about three weeks, I have a very healthy immune system, you know, mm-hmm. knock on wood, yeah. thank yeah. God. It's one of the things right. I think I got from my mother. But so I realized about three months, you know, I did the Mighty Max's Monday Memories, right. which was fun. And yeah. I was really, it was a lot of work to do behind the scenes. Of but course. I so enjoyed the questions that mm-hmm. people had. It yeah. was really Yeah, un- they were they, they were great. They they actually frustrated me how great they were when, when I went to think about what I wanted to ask because I don't want to ask exactly the same questions, but there were so many great questions that were put out there. Yeah, they, um, so so it was well th- thought out. To tell you what I did mm-hmm. basically, I have been working as a musician since I was 7 years old. Right. And I realized I have never apart from all the other stuff I did that outside of music I never took a vacation, like just go someplace. I've been a lot of places, right. but it was always working. And I, like the rest of us, was sort of forced inside. Thankfully, I married above my station. So mm-hmm. my wife Becky is, apart from being an incredible dancer, great, and great teacher, and great blues harmonicist yeah. now. Yeah, you yeah. know, she and she's a teacher, right. Shore Regional. Right. She's an incredible cook. She's at the chef category as mm-hmm. far as so. I ate great. Right. I basically did uh, nothing but read. Workout every day with a routine that you know keeps me strong, mm-hmm. and I realized it was almost like this must be what retirement is like. I never had that much free time yeah. to just do what I wanted to do. I was always working. It must have felt strange in the middle of it in December to come to New York and do Saturday Night Live uh, with the band when Letters to You came out. I know they had a lot of COVID protection. Yeah, uh, yeah. That, when that was done. Well, I have a good friend who's the producer, the, the actual well, sure. on the floor From, producer mm-hmm. of that. And when they stayed on the air, right. uh, even before, you know, Bruce asked us to, to do this. But I'll tell you a funny story about, you know, he was he was telling me how safe it is. I didn't really have a problem because I was the beneficiary, as we all were, of Bruce's largesse in, in getting us there, mm-hmm. for one thing. And that was really pretty special. And it was, a, you know, it was extremely controlled. But one of the funny things that happened was I got a text from Bruce about, uh, it wasn't like, it was like three weeks before, right? I think it was December 12th or 14th. <laughs> hey, Max, we got a gig. And I wrote him back saying, Bruce, I know exactly, that, that's fantastic, yeah. but it makes me feel like I'm in eighth grade again, waiting <laughs> to play the school dance six months <laughs> from now. And he wrote back, he says, that's exactly it. I was like, wow, we got a gig where we're gonna play for people. And that's what the whole thing was like. You couldn't believe you were sort of out of your room and and playing and, mm-hmm. and for that you know brief moment. At Saturday Night Live, it's hard to do. Right. A lot of rehearsals, mm-hmm. long hours, you stay up late. Right, and, and then you it, add all of the protection and everything else they threw in. The protection yeah. was pretty unbelievable. Yeah, they had these heard. hall monitors that wore purple vests with a like a double yardstick. And mm-hmm. if you weren't standing six feet apart with a mask on, they would come over and and push you apart <laughs> and you couldn't leave your room right you know they put you in a, in a place and they sequester you and i was completely comfortable we had no you know vaccinations at that right, point right so it was uh, it was it yeah. was fun it was doable yeah from a fan's position to have something to look forward to that night was just incredible because things were not great in december and i know speaking on behalf even though it's a financial show on behalf of the uh, east street nation it was a lift it was a lift that everybody needed 
And I think that was the motivation. It yeah. was just, let's just, a, you know, for Bruce, just a gift to, hey, we made $300 each. Yeah. And that was, uh, hey, that was good too. You know, it, I mean, you sure. get your union wage. Yeah. And I think that was it. It was just like to do something, right. you know. Uh, and new music on top of it, you know, with, with, with the fantastic album that had come out. So, yeah. So let's, I want to go way back to Beth Israel Hospital, which, by the way, I was born at too oh. um, in Newark um, and many, and many of our age. Yeah, yeah. You were, you were there about 10 years before me, but uh, my picture was on the wall. I'd love to talk about Newark a little bit and then we'll get into Maplewood South Orange. I mean, you, you described it on your, on your Mac show, uh, you know, the, perfectly, the Philip Roth neighborhood. And as a grandfather who had a photo studio in that neighborhood, I have memories of it. But when you watched uh, The Plot Against America, America, for example, oh, that was did my you feel like this was, wow, this is, this was it. Yeah, completely. South Ward, you know, which is, for people who don't know, kind of borders Newark, that Newark Airport, Northern State Penitentiary, mm -hmm. and it was the Jewish section right. of uh, Newark, the Weequake section, right. they called it. So sure, the, you know, a big Philip Roth fan always have been. As a matter of fact, my father's business was a summer camp. Mm-hmm. In the Poconos. Where my brother-in-law, Jerry, went with you one, one summer. What's his last Jerry Bedroom. Oh, Remember, Jerry, you met him in my bar. Right, Jerry exactly. Bedroom, right? Yep. That was a different camp, but right. yes. Yes. So my father's, that was his business. Mm -hmm. And he started that in 1930 up in this one particular camp. And in 1952 and 1953, Philip Roth was a counselor at my father's camp. My mother taught at Weequake High School for like 50 years. I had a, uh, a second cousin who was an English teacher there who was actually older than Roth and inspired him and brought him back there to speak after he made it. But anyway, about, oh, last year sometime, my management company got a, a letter from a woman who was mounting the quintessential Philip Roth exhibit at the Newark Museum. Right, right. And apparently someone had given a gift or he had given a gift of uh, all his books, which they have, but his letters. And in and among the letters was a letter home from camp to his parents. Hello, and he's mother, talking hello, about father. it was a bit of that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. He goes, you know, everything. And then finally, there's a line: everything would be good if it wasn't for that Weinberg bastard. <laughs> Parent, so the letter, the Cla woman who was mounting this. Classic. Uh, may I assume that that was Max Weinberg? <laughs> and so he sent me the letter, and I wrote her back saying, "Well, I would have been just about a year old, so right, I don't so think it was me." But right. Judging from the tone, I think it was my cousin Lewis who was 14 <laughs> at the time, and he was like a like an Eddie Haskell, right. Dennis the Menace yeah. kind of guy. <laughs> but if you watch the plot against America, mm -hmm. you know that it was all about it's a phenomenal shorter right. book yeah. about the polio scare, and right. it goes away to camp. Mm -hmm. Well, that was my father's camp that Philip Roth went right. to, but these, he went there in 52 and 53 as a counselor. He was 19. In the book and in the new biography, which unfortunately has been pulled from the shelves, but I got a copy of early on, he talks about wanting his girlfriend from Newark to come get a job there so they could be together the right. second summer. <laughs> so he called the camp director. Right. Well, that was my father. Yeah. So it's in the Plot Against America right. book and, and TV series, yeah. which is fantastic. Yeah. And that's really what it was like. It mm. was, uh, we moved out. How uh, old were you when you moved out? Oh, year and a half, I think, something like that. What happened was we the house was so small, right. we had to get, so we moved to Maplewood. Right, which is what every Jew in, in, in the <laughs> South Ward did, basically. It was Maplewood yeah. and South Orange. There were towns that we were accepted. Uh, it's interesting because I live South in- South Orange, one, you had to have money. Yeah, right? yeah. That wasn't, it, or, or, or that wasn't happening. I, I, live, uh, I live in now, and, uh, and uh, 
some other friends know about. Um, not so accepted back in 1959, 1960, but, you know, South Orange certainly and, and Maplewood were. But the well, question... You, the, yeah. the thing was that uh, even though... So I basically, whenever this has come up, mm-hmm. I said, well, I slept in Maplewood, but because my everything my parents and my older sisters did was in Newark. Right. And Maplewood is right on the border. I had much more of a street life than a sort of ballpark, green, right. leafy thing, uh, uh, upbringing, which was good when I got into music. Right. Well, in your first gig, were you seven years old, a bar mitzvah, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, it was a bar mitzvah or a wedding. I'm not right. quite sure. What was the song? Well, I, at seven years old, I didn't know a lot of songs. Okay, but you, you got up there and you played my something. Mother, my mother was a head counselor at uh-huh. camp. That's how my parents met right. and in 1936. And in, well, I was seven, so it would have been late 57, 58. And I was the only boy, so my, wherever we went out, to someplace like that, right. I had a beautiful suit, mm-hmm. you know, tab collar. Tie. Right. I looked like a little man, right? right? <laughs> she loved dressing me in these, you know. And yeah. they, they couldn't really afford it, but my son is going to look like a prince. That's a whole other story, but I, <laughs> I, I was kind of a prince. Yeah. Uh, to my mother, anyway. Right. And I was given, without going into the whole detail of how I became a drummer, I had the ability, and I was given a little beat-up drum by my uh, cousin who played drums. Who, he was quite a bit older than I, mm-hmm. and he gave him this thing, and I would hack around on it. And my parents had a, uh, a record of John Philip Sousa marches, and uh, I listened to that, and I could play to that, right? So at this catered affair, <laughs> which was in Milburn or right. Short Hills. Probably the Short Hills caterers. Uh, and the it was Shana Claire. Yeah, that's it was right. I had Claire. my bar mitzvah party at the Shana Claire. You did? Yeah, sing along with Mitch. Oh, you were a rich kid then. Oh, <laughs> my father was working for a jazz record label then, so it was a good year. Oh, it was it a good was, year. It happened to be a good year. Yeah. They, well, anyway, they had George so Benson. My mother goes up to the band leader. His name was Herb Zane. Now, Herb Zane at that time was the sort of, you know, wedding bar mitzvah orchestra, combo, mm-hmm. whatever you want. And she said, my son plays drums, can he play with your band? And he looked at me, this little kid, but I was really dressed sharp, you know? And he said, what do you play? I said, well, I can play, and I could, when the saints come marching in. Because I could do a little ding, 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 right? <laughs> and I could do the march thing. And, you know, I was fearless. Right. So I go up there, and, you know, and I counted it off. I said, one, two, three, four, you know, go like that. And then they came in, uh, da, 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 da. and I got through the song because I would do a drum solo. I didn't, you know, when you're seven years old, I was shy, right? But not behind the drums, ever. I was, I was a very shy kid. But whenever I played the drums, I sort of like you could show off, right? And so he hired me as a little novelty act to go along with his regular orchestra, and I'd come in, I'd dress up, he'd give me, you know, fifty cents. Mm-hmm. I played with him until I was 14, off and on. And the whole concept of drumming for me was unlike a lot of people I know and, and, and many of my colleagues, it was absolutely not a way to rebel. I wanted into the establishment because of my parents' financial situation with the camp, which uh, ended up in, in chapter 11 in 1965. I had to go out and work. So for me, playing the drums and getting gigs particularly in, in and around Newark, mm-hmm. was a way I could bring money in. and so it, You were helping the family. I was helping my family, yeah. and um, you know, it was better than a paper route to me or right. working in the supermarket. Right. You know, and working with Herb Zane was, was great because sure. it really gave me experience in everything but rock and roll. It was still the transition mm-hmm. between 
club dates right. where it was all rock. Right. It was still sort of the swing, standards, mm-hmm. cha-cha, merengue, right. bossa nova, all the sort of what they used to call legitimate drumming. Mm-hmm. And I was very well versed in that. Right. And, and I got better at it. And then, of course, you know, with the Beatles, I'd already been playing for six or seven years. Well, the well did you see DJ Fontana first before the Beatles? Was, was the well, Elvis yeah, I, I, experience earlier? Or that really influenced you? Yeah. Well, I saw, the first time I saw Elvis with DJ Fontana and Bill Black and Scotty Moore, I had two teenage sisters. Mm-hmm. And my oldest sister was, I often describe them as, uh, think of the movie Grease. Mm-hmm. One was Rizzo. Okay. My oldest sister, right. one was Sandy. Okay. My <laughs> surviving oldest sister. Right. You know, so it was rock and roll and classical music, mm-hmm. pop music and opera mm-hmm. in our house. So the Dorsey brothers, mm-hmm. Tommy and Jimmy Dorsey had a summer replacement show. I think it was on CBS and Elvis was on there. And that was the first, that was a year before Ed Sullivan. So Psalm made an impression on me. The, what really made the impression on me was when he was on Milton Berle, mm. which was a, April, I think of 56. And cause now I kind of knew who he was. My older sister, Patty, poodle skirt, ponytail, the whole right. uh, leather jacket, mm-hmm. dressed me up as Elvis with cardboard sideburns, <laughs> made me a little rubber band guitar. I know you have but photos would, of everything. There I has do. to be photos yes, of that I somewhere. Do. Max. Okay. That I, I don't yeah. have, I have the rubber band guitar, <laughs> but I do have a lot of stuff like yeah. that. But I went past Elvis to DJ because of that, and I've said it a million times, mm-hmm. that that drum roll on Hound Dog, you know? Right. And and I'd had the little drums, so sort of things started to open up and make a little bit of sense. And I was not a great, I loved playing sports, but I wasn't really that good. Plus, both my parents were phenomenal athletes. My father lettered in five different sports, and they would never let me play anything where I could get hurt, right? <laughs> and which really upset me at the time, but right. now at the age of 70, I am so glad. Yeah, you, know, yeah, you got uh, knees. Drumming hurt me right. through the years, but well, sure. you know, my knees are good, Right, never broke my nose, right. and, uh, you know, playing sports. Yeah. So yeah, it would all kind of came together, and I... But for me, yeah, I'd been, it was DJ, really. It was, everybody paid attention to the drummer when Elvis, you know, well, at least I did. Right. And it made a big noise. And I had the drum and I had these beat up sticks, the sticks I still have. And I kind of fell into it. And uh, plus I couldn't, you know, go out for teams and things. So it, the great transition was there was that weird period between Elvis and the Beatles. Right. Where he, you know, 58, he went into the army and everything kind of fell apart and you had you know frankie avalon and fabian and the the pop stars based on elvis right and that music i like too because right. whether you whether the songs some people say the songs were corny but the rhythm sections on all of those records you're going to all these broadway shows you, you get the experience that's amazing which i was fortunate too to see you know incredible shows that were happening but how does a nice jewish boy wind up playing drums in the pit for a Broadway hit show based on the Gospel of Matthew. Oh, Godspell. <laughs> <laughs> and the Passion of Christ. I think it was kind of all combined. You know? What well, was a hit show? Yeah. It was a big show on Broadway. Well, can- and- Canada, didn't it start in Canada? I think. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, it was yeah. written by, uh, that's how I met Paul Schaefer. Right. He came down to take the piano player's place when I was doing the show. We did it for about eight months, uh, both of us. By the way, written by Stephen Schwartz. Stephen Schwartz. Pippin and Wicked. So, you right. Know, yeah. And. It was a big, you know, they had Day by Day, it was a big right, record. Right. So I was at the time 
going to Seton Hall University. Mm -hmm. I was leaving home. Right. I was taking drum lessons with Bernard Purdy. Drum lessons with Pretty Purdy consisted basically of picking up his laundry, doing errands, and then occasionally he would give you some, I didn't realize at the time, but I was an apprentice. Mm -hmm. So because of him, I got to set, help him set his drums up for Aretha, which became the album Aretha. Godspell, right. a friend of mine, uh, was a recording engineer, had another friend who played bass in the show, and they were looking for us, another alternate drummer. On Broadway, when you get the show, if you're the not primary drummer, after 13 weeks, if it lasts, it's your gig. And then you can farm it out. Mm -hmm. And you get paid your salary, but then you pay the, the sub out of that. So I became a sub, and then the primary drummer left. And about a year before I met Bruce, I became the main drummer. Were, was Gilda Radner and, and Martin Short in the show then? Because no, I know they, they got their starts too in Godspell, I think. In Godspell yeah. in Canada. Yeah. In Canada, okay. Uh, they did, then they did comedy. I'll tell you, there were some people, a, a TV director named Don Scardino was in it. Another guy who, you don't know his name, but you know you see his face on right. a million TV shows, Paul Kreppel. There was another guy, his name was William, who... Uh, you know, I, saw, I gave my two weeks notice. Mm -hmm. He came up, he said, you know, I think you're really making a big mistake. This show could last forever. Yeah. <laughs> I said, well, this guy's really good. And the band he's got is, is really good. So, so let's just wind you know. that back a little bit. So you're in Godspell, <laughs> you pick up a village voice and... Well, no, I was in Godspell. I was playing yeah. in a band with <laughs> several friends of mine and we were kind of doing traffic, tall, mm -hmm. sort of progressive rock a right. little bit. You know, we were very good jammers. In those days, now this is, you know, early 70s, and, and you know, I'm a, a, a drummer, so I was playing with so many different, like we were talking about goalies before. Mm -hmm. It's like being a goalie. You right. always need a goalie. Right. You always need a drummer. And, you know, <laughs> the drummer in those days, you know, everybody wanted to be Tony Williams or Billy Cobham, so it's the drummer playing, you know, 25 choruses of everybody else soloing. And it really built up my chops. Mm -hmm. So the band I was in, so it was based in, in and around Nanuet, New York. And 914 Studios was on Route 303 in Nanuet, mm -hmm. which was, it was an old gas station. And that's where Greetings from Asbury Park and the Wild well, the Innocent, uh, well, the Innocent was there, recorded. Yeah. Yeah. And so the guys I was playing with lived, they were from up there, they lived up there and they knew Louis Lahav and mm -hmm. you know, they knew, they didn't know Bruce, but they knew that Bruce Springsteen, Janice Ian was the, the main person who used that studio. And she was produced by Brooks Arthur who owned it who was, of course, a legendary early engineer and then became a producer. In any case, uh, the singer went down to the bottom line in 74 and came back raving about this guy, Bruce Springsteen, and his band, the E Street Band. And four months before that, I was going to Seton Hall. I was asked to play drums in a, uh, there was a, a friend of mine in the, going to school with me, Jim Marino is from Belmar, New Jersey. And he was kind of the singer-songwriter, uh, Jim Croce, James Taylor. Mm -hmm. And he had a group of friends that they'd harmonize together. And he got the gig to open for Bruce mm -hmm. in the Seton Hall cafeteria. It was April of 74. Asked me if I'd play drums, because they didn't typically have a drummer. And I said, sure, because I'd live three blocks away. So I'd never heard of Bruce Springsteen. And you know, we rehearsed for a couple of weeks for this thing. It was a big deal gig. Mm -hmm. He was a big fan. And in his set, he didn't play it that night. I learned later he played the song Sandy. He didn't play it that night because, right. you know, Bruce was going to play it, right? Right. And he did it acoustic anyway. Sure. So the odd thing that happened was 
in the middle of our set, I started to get really ill and I felt really bad. It turns out I had a, a acute um, tonsillitis. Mm -hmm. They took out my tonsils the next day. So I was going to leave. And Jim said to me, oh, you, you got it. You got to listen to this guy. It'll blow your mind. I said, I really don't feel good. He said, well, listen to one song. So I said, all right, I'm going to listen to one song. So we're in the back and it's in the cafeteria. The stage is like tables, <laughs> you know, the, no introduction, just the lights come down, light hits the piano and guy sits down at the piano and starts playing and real long, this long introduction. And that guy was David Sanchez. And he's playing this very extended intro to New York City's Serenade. And about three or four minutes into it, I said, I really got to go. Yeah. <laughs> and I went home and I, I did go to the hospital. So when I left there thinking that Bruce Springsteen was this black cat who played piano and he was fantastic, <laughs> you know, I had no idea. That's yeah, like a six minute intro. Yeah. I mean, and, you know, know, I left before yeah. the band came right. on. I didn't know anything about Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> and it wasn't called in the East. I don't think it was billed with the East Street Band there. Some of the first shows I did were not billed in the East Street right. Band. Then shortly after Roy and I joined, it became and the East Street Band. So the next I heard that name was this guy came back from the bottom line and right. said, this guy, this is really where rock is going. And we were playing sort of, you know, the a lot of traffic, rock and roll stew and, very, you know, more progressive sure. stuff. And that's what was popular. And I said, gee, that, Springsteen, yeah, that, that was that guy that, you know, Jim Marino opened for. And uh, Joe D'Elia, who's still one of my dear friends and is an incredible pianist and composer who, who put the whole Buster Poindexter thing together. Mm -hmm. He was the pianist in that and musical director. He auditioned on piano. I didn't know it. Then we had two keyboards. The other guy, this guy, Jack Kraft, he auditioned on piano. Now he was really good friends with Louie, the engineer. And I, I think they both kind of thought they'd get it, you know, it was rock, rock and roll. Right. Rock and roll at the time was, they're really, the kind of rock and roll we ended up, you know, Bruce was doing, nobody was doing that. I mean, it was heavy, it was Zeppelin, right. Slade. Mm -hmm. Definitely wasn't. No. And, and I had kind of fallen out. I love Zeppelin, but I didn't see myself playing that. Right. And I still had an interest to go to law school <laughs> and I was still in college. So about three weeks after that ad came out and these two guys auditioned, Joe, he brought the ad and he said, you know, I heard from Louie, the engineer, they're still looking for a drummer. So I figured to myself, well, it seems like everybody in this band is auditioning. I'll throw my hand. I didn't know sure. who he was. Right. I didn't know any of his songs. I knew that Jim Marino was from the shore, that he was a big fan, and he had played a little bit with Clarence, who I didn't know. In any case, so I called up. You know, the, I remember the number was 212-759-1610. It was Mike Capel's office. They had an assistant there. His name was Don. And he wasn't in. They called me back. I was living in the basement. It wasn't an apartment. I was literally living in the basement of Joe D'Elia's father-in-law's house on an army cot and splitting my time between. I basically take my laundry back to my parents' mm -hmm. house because they were in South Orange, right. Napewood, and this was up in Nyack, New York, and I was trying to break away from home. <laughs> so he took a message and he was a, a physicist. He had this yellow legal pad and he wrote it was all these equations. And at the bottom, it said, Max, this guy, Don, Don Nada from Springstein, S-T-E-I-N, <laughs> called something about an audition. I have that piece of paper, by the way. It's in my memorabilia. <laughs> so I, you know, I went down there on a Monday night. 
which was a dark night on Broadway. So I only brought a bass drum, a snare drum, and a hi-hat. I didn't bring a whole drum set hmm. because the ad said no junior ginger bakers. Oh, okay. And that to me was very revealing mm -hmm. because I wasn't a ginger baker. There right. was one ginger baker. Right. He was phenomenal. Right, one band cream, and that was it. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, and he was a great drummer. I mean, yeah. people don't know what a great jazz drummer he was in England before cream. That's true. I mean, he was a serious jazz right. drummer, and he was in direct line with Phil Seaman, who was, you know, the most famous sort of jazz Dixieland swing guy who was 10 years older than Ginger. That's too deep. <laughs> yeah. No, you, you, could, uh, you could find the big beat somewhere. He, Max's oh, probably book, on which eBay. Gives you, yeah, which gives uh, you all the details on that. So what that said to me, that ad, no mm -hmm. junior Ginger Bay, was a little sarcastic way of saying, you know, no drum solos. Mm -hmm. And it said Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band on Columbia Records, the ad. So, all right, I'd heard this name a couple of times. He had a record deal, which in the end, that was the Nirvana. You had a, it didn't even matter if you sold records, which he didn't. You had a deal. Right. And in fact, I think they had sold, when I joined the band, a total of about 15,000 records of both albums. He was about to be dropped, which I didn't know. And I didn't care because I brought this little drum set. And at the time, you remember, and it's still, I look at my son Jay's drums. He's got, and he uses all of them. You know, he's got lots of toms, lots of cymbals, the timpani, uses it all. But in those days, if you had that kind of drum set, that meant you were a Ginger Baker type drummer. Right. So I came in with this, what turned about, turned to be this minimalist drum set, which I didn't, I, it wasn't, it was simply convenience. I mm -hmm. didn't want to take the whole, you know, all my drums down. And it said Chuck Berry, Jerry Lee Lewis. I didn't really need any tom-toms, you know, because everything they did was on the snare right. drum and the exactly. hi-hat and the bass drum. So to me, it was pretty obvious, but apparently to, made a big minimalist, oh, this guy must think he's really good. He doesn't even bring an entire drum set. And uh, I was just, I had to carry it. And I said, well, I could, I could cut this. So, you know, that was the first night I auditioned. And I had no expectations at all. And I think one of the things that won Bruce over, well, I know 20 years later, I asked him why he picked me. But one of the things that won him, won him over was that I said I was from New Jersey when in those days it was very popular if you were from the tri-state area, if you were a musician, to say you were from New York. You know, there were New York musicians, LA musicians, right. and Nashville was like Mars. Right. And that was it. So, you know, wherever you were from, you were from New York. But I said, no, I'm from New Jersey. And I didn't really know that New Jersey played such a big <laughs> role in, you know, in, in his life in right. music. I didn't right. know him at all. And he said, do you know any of my songs during that first? Uh, no, because I hadn't, I said, can you give me some names? Reeled off a few. And then he, like the fourth or fifth song he said was Sandy. Mm -hmm. I said, yeah, I think I, I think I played that song. Jim Marino played that song. Mm. So, and I was a very good improviser. Wow. I could pick up really, that, that's why I got in the band. I could pick up quickly and- uh, Very appropriate as we're sitting here and Danny Clinch's gallery in Asbury Park. So, yeah, perfect song, <laughs> uh, Sandy. Yeah. Exactly, and I, you know, I kind of knew it. And I said, you know, I remember thinking, well, when I got in the band, the first thing I changed was the beat jumped around. Though it was very quaint, it was great, and Vinny was terrific. But to me, it, it should be more linear. So it went from halftime to straight time and back. And so I just made everything in four with the the apart. Right. But I just straightened it out a little bit. So it was sort of the first, may have been one of three suggestions I've made in the last forty eight years, but. <clears throat> 
It was a good suggestion. It was a good suggestion. So yeah, so I got you know you got, got in the band, and, and Roy uh, got in same time, right? Roy, right before you, right? Roy got in. So I my second audition, my first audition, it was just uh, Bruce, Clarence, Danny, and Gary. Mm-hmm. And what was most impressive, actually, Bruce was quite impressive right from the the jump with counting it off. But it was really impressive was the way the other guys, the other three guys, focused on what he was doing, and that was the thing that almost more impressed me because that was the hardest thing to get in a band for everybody to sort of push in one direction, right? So immediately, the first thing it said to me was, oh, I get it, this isn't a band. This is a guy with a band. This is before I got in the band Mm -hmm. because they're they're doing, they're just catching everything. So I did well, apparently, and he told me years later, everybody got, every drummer got a half hour. And 60 to, drummers, right? 64 or 64 five. drummers. I think I was around the 58th. And he ha- he was looking for a particular thing. Right. Like, you know, Which I mean, that was is. a bespoke <laughs> band yeah. in, in many ways. Right. Um, he said everybody, no matter how bad or good you were, if you were good in, in an area he didn't particularly think was helpful to him, didn't matter. But everybody got a half hour. And during the half hour, they played this, uh, one of their big showstoppers was let, was let the Four Winds Blow. And he kind of strained it out a little bit because there were a lot of a lot of sort of kiddies back accents, mm-hmm. which was no problem for me because I was used to doing that kind of stuff. But some guys, you know, played with their eyes closed. <laughs> you played with your eyes closed. Yeah, you didn't make through the audition. And in the one song, he did this with every drummer. He said he got to the middle and was really pumping, and he went like this, like stop. And if you didn't stop, he did it again. And he said, you know, the second time or the third time, most people got it, you know, stop. Because they heard the band stop. Right. And the drummer kept playing, right? And he did it like twice. So with me, you know, boom, somebody goes like that. Like if, with my background, if a dancer kicks, you hit a cymbal. You know, it accented. It's sort of like drums in service of some physical thing. Just came very naturally to me. It goes back to that legitimate drumming rather than just... I'm a rock drummer, I'm a jazz mm-hmm. drummer. You can play a little bit of everything. That's how you stay in work as a drummer. Right. You know, I didn't write, so I'm, I'm not a writer. And then he stopped. Okay, so they're stopped. And he'd get a long pause. And then without warning, he shot out his hand like that. And out of the 60-something drummers that played that with him over a period of about six weeks, I was the only one who hit a rim shot when he went like that. <laughs> And that's when he said to me, that's when I decided you were the guy because you went for it. You know, you didn't know me at all. You didn't know anybody and you didn't know the music, although you were very quick. It wasn't, he said some guys came in and they had both albums down, which is not what he wanted. Mm -hmm. And, you know, to me, it was one of the side things I did was about five months before that I auditioned and got the gig for this duo on Columbia, ironically, called Janie and Dennis. They were husband and wife singer, singer songwriters. And there was a lot of expectation for them. And they had auditions. I get in the band. About three weeks later, they say, well, it's really not working out. So they kind of fired me. And I was really bummed out. Yeah, we all remember all the Janie and Dennis wonderful yeah. albums and the Grammys. And, and was, yeah, I remember, yeah, the, the, the Irving Fallberg Award. Oh, maybe that's the Oscars. They, remember that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that was February of 74, and I was really bummed out. So I took a leave of absence from Godspell and I drove out to the West Coast. I drove somebody's car to try to find some work, right? In those days, you could, 
Acon Auto Transport. You can mm-hmm. drive somebody's car. Right, right. That's a whole other story we don't have time for. <laughs> but I get out there. I come back. I'm a little refreshed. And, uh, you know, it was that August that I met Bruce. And we started this band, High Point, in June. And, uh, you know, we would play the Orangeburg Pub, which is probably still there, down the highway from Studio 914. And it was at the Orangeburg Pub. I had a gig when I got the phone call that, you know, Bruce wanted me to join the band. Now, did you go right into the sessions? Because this is 74, so almost time to... He's already working on Born to Run, I guess. He had recorded he had Born recorded, to Run. Well, Born to Run, he had already recorded the song. Right? Yeah, that was done. Right, right. Yeah. Right. Somebody recently said, yeah, I loved your playing on Born to Run. And I, for 40-something, eight years, I've been saying, it's not me. Well, it's it is Boone on Carter. every other song on this album. Uh, yeah, on the album, Just right. not that one particular song. But Well, Boone you know, Carter, uh, who... <laughs> I'm sure it still is, but yeah. incredible drummer. Right. I mean, really right. good. He could he could do it all. Had great feel too. When we came out with the box set mm-hmm. a couple of years ago, he did a very funny interview and guy asked him, You're in seven eleven and you hear Born to Run, come on, what do you feel like doing? He goes, Well, you know, I quit the band. I feel like running out into traffic. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was a, uh. a great response, but so what's the first time that you, you know, Born to Run's out, you're touring, of course, all over the place, the famous Harvard show, the Landau quote, the, everything that went on there. But what's the first time you heard yourself on the radio? That had to be just like a magical moment. And knowing you, Max, you probably remember the song and where it happened. With Bruce? Yeah. Well, I do. And I was, it sounds like it's right out of a Springsteen song. We were playing in near Santa Barbara and we were staying at, this hotel, it was kind of on the beach in Santa Barbara and Born to Run had just came come out and he had a rented station wagon and we were driving, he and I were going out to like a Denny's to get something to eat, whatever the equivalent was in Santa right. Barbara. And Jungle Land came on. It was a beautiful night. We pulled off the road and sat there in the darkness with, it was, it was like a Springsteen song with just the glow of the radio. Wow. Listening to Jungle Land. So that was the the first time, an instance, where I heard myself play, you know, a Bruce song on the radio. I had done a a couple of other recordings before that with my high school bands and another band that I joined after high school. And I heard them on the radio. And so that was exciting. But, you know, Columbia was still very much up in the air about whether they were going to keep him. Right. And it was a thrill. And we sat there and... Yeah, it was a long song. Right. We were both hungry. Yeah. We were going out to eat, <laughs> That's right? True. But That's like true. time stood still. Yeah. I, I vividly well, I have a good memory generally, yeah. but it's probably uh, a twenty four hour restaurant, so it well it was one of those, time. you know. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so we did get, eventually go out. Right. And oh I'm the one thing I remember about those kind of late night meals was Bruce himself would never want to order a whole milkshake, but can I have a sip of that? <laughs> and a chocolate milkshake. Uh, so uh, those are wonderful formative years, obviously, a long yeah, time ago. Sure. But it was a thrill. Oh. And actually, I still get a, th- a thrill, you know. And sometimes, you know, you'll hear the music, any musician probably feels this, but you're very critical when you first hear something. And right. then it starts to open up. Your ears start to, I'm sure you you know what I'm talking about. Your mm-hmm. ears start to take it in and suddenly you you disappear. Maybe not so suddenly, right. but, you know, you disappear and the totality of the thing hits you. And maybe what you didn't like 
10 years ago now hits your ears in a right. different way. So, yeah. And now you've got E Street Radio playing, you know, every one of your songs 24 hours a day, you know, so you, you have the opportunity to hear, you know, the night backstreets in Milan to, uh, you know, Candy's Room in Stockholm or wherever. So it's, it's always playing. <laughs> yeah, well, you mentioned Stockholm. It's yeah. funny. We have a song that we don't play very often called Back in Your Arms. Right. Love that song. And uh, actually, Jimmy Vivino from the TV band mm -hmm. plays bass on it. Right. On the album. Because mm -hmm. uh, Gary didn't make the session. For some reason, he got snowed in. And, you know, we're looking around New York for a bass right. player. And I had just come over from NBC, and I knew Jimmy was probably still there. I called him, and he came over, and he played bass. But we don't often play it. And on the River 2.0 tour, we mm -hmm. played it a couple of times. Sure. And we're... After the show, we were going to the next gig and we we're, you know, sort of standing around talking and, hey, it really sounded good. You know, we're uh, congratulating. Mm -hmm. It was good. You know, it was good tonight. And and, uh, and Bruce said, yeah, you know, the the best time we ever played that, though, the best it ever sounded was Stockholm in, in 2009. And then I realized and said, Bruce, that was Jay. That wasn't me. <laughs> and it was, <laughs> yeah. and, it's a, and it, it was like, yeah, he kicked your ass on that one, Max. <laughs> and, and of course, he kissed my ass on uh, several of the tunes. Uh, Radio Nowhere is one. I, I remember uh, the Radio Nowhere opening the show. I think it was still Giant Stadium uh, when, when, Jay, when Jay joined the band. Well, the funny thing about that, Rick, yeah. so when we were rehearsing to play the Super Bowl in right. 2009, we were rehearsing in New York, and Bruce came in with a scratch pad with about 200 songs on it for Jay to learn. He told me he could start working on these. Because, mm -hmm. you know, I was doing The Tonight Show and we had a scheduling thing. And, you know, he asked Jay to play, which he did, and he did marvelously. And Back in Your Arms was not on that list. So Jay was, you know, going to high, he was in high school. And he'd come home and he'd practice the parts. and he Because he learned how to play, like all of us, right. by playing the records. Right. In his case, Metallica, Slipknot, right. Punk, and I took him to, it was a great bonding, all through his, from the age of 13 till he graduated high school, three shows a week we went to. Mm -hmm. I'd get done with the TV show and just, you know, we'd go to a show. And as he says, this is my father, the past. Yeah. <laughs> so we saw everybody. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of earplugs for you during those metal shows? Those six no, because I'd always learn something. Yeah. I mean, I'd see, you know, whether it was Travis Barker right. or, or- That's true, tremendous you know, amount of talent. Uh, Cody and Cambria's yeah. uh, Thomas Pridgen. Right incredible young drummers so for me it was to me it was all rock and roll and yeah. it was jay's music not mine which i would have never listened to but he he's very analytical and uh, we spent a lot of time going to not only shows you know i had the opportunity to take him to, to some of the living legend jazz drummers like roy haynes mm -hmm. who's still playing and he's almost 100 years old just so he could develop his ears but jay was you know practicing he was getting all the stuff down and he said, you know, I, uh, this is like, he had to absorb the history of the kind of music that influenced us. And he'd always sort of heard it around the house. But I said, Jay, look, here's my copy of Sam and Dave's Greatest Hits. If you internalize this, it'll teach you everything you need to know about playing with Bruce and the E Street Band. So true. Because he knew the Beatles, mm -hmm. all of my little Ringoisms and Charlie Watts. He knew all mm -hmm. that vocabulary. Yeah. And, uh, and he threw in some of his metal mm -hmm. stuff, you know. And he's like a rocket scientist. He's got a degree from Stevens Institute right. uh, in Hoboken. So he figured it out. It was hard. But so they're in Stockholm and Bruce calls out back in your arms. Jay's never played the song. He never heard of the song. 
gets this panicked look on his face. <laughs> and he looks over at Steve, who's kind of, you know, could be the music director on stage. Right. And, and Steve mouths to him, Sam and Dave, which mm. it's like. So Steve And there's perfect. a recording of that. Yeah. And damn, he hit every accent. Yeah. Bring it down. Pow. And there's a recording and Bruce. Yeah, the recording's incredible. You know, Sorry, I, th I thought it was you. <laughs> well, uh, he played it better than me. And, um, and it's, it's, a, you know, it's not an easy song to play because of the groove. And he nailed it and he got a huge introduction. So needless to say, I'm very proud of, no, of uh, both my children yeah. who followed their instincts and developed careers. And, and while, we're, while we're talking about both kids, obviously, Jay, we talked about in Slipknot and also won Metal Drummer of the Year Award. I think he's got a Grammy. Yeah. yeah. Actually, he won Best Metal Drummer two years in a row, Modern Drummer, which is like the industry magazine for drummers. But last year, two years ago in 2020, he won Best Rock Drummer, which is all of rock. Wow. I never even got close to that. So... Mm. You always want your children to do better than you. Yeah, absolutely. You know? I, I couldn't agree more. Speaking of children, you have an incredible oh, yeah, daughter. Okay. Yeah. Um, I had the pleasure of interviewing Allie Rogan, Max's daughter, a fantastic journalist. You can go back and listen to that episode and you'll hear all about her journalism background. She's uh, at NPR now, I believe. Or, or she is PBS. a produce, senior producer at the PBS, PBS News Hour. Right, right, right. PBS News Hour. Right. And uh, she does a lot of foreign right. affairs. And wrote this great book yeah, on her even, experiences with breast cancer. Right, and and uh, beat breast cancer like a boss, which is just a great title, obviously. But you had the opportunity to interview thirty powerful women that that went through this, that had the BRCA gene, which you know ran in your family. It got from me. Yeah, we believe. Right, and we just did a this past uh, weekend. Mm -hmm. We did a co-interview for the CBS morning show, which I think is going to be on this mm -hmm. Friday, probably after this airs, mm -hmm. uh, before this sure. airs about her experiences mm -hmm. and mine right. and trying to get the information out there and the stuff that we learned about the experience with both the BRCA gene, in my case, having prostate cancer and dealing with that. Mm -hmm. And it's a wonderful book. Yeah. So there, Jay is in uh, Los Angeles recording another Slipknot record. Yeah, they're, maybe going, he, he, they're going on tour. And yeah. So, you know, well, but Allie this also, is all for them to support me. Allie also age. sings. I mean, I just saw um, yeah. Allie and Kristen Chenoweth do a duet. Yeah. And that was, <laughs> I, I had to look three times. I, I, I'm like, wait, that's Allie. That's Allie Rogan. Yeah, yeah. She's always been a great a singer. Voice. Perfect pitch. One of our games when she was a little girl was I guessed the singer. Mm -hmm. And she never failed yeah. to guess who it was, whether it was Bono or Frank Sinatra or Paul mm -hmm. McCartney. But she has perfect pitch and never wanted to be a professional musician, always wanted to be a journalist. Right. She's a wonderful pianist as well. And uh, she does it for fun. She's in a band. Mm -hmm. She's also on a girls' hockey team. Right. So and married. Right. And her husband's a Washington Post columnist. Yeah, great columnist. Uh, yeah, he yeah, is. Terrific. And, uh, he has a great book out mm -hmm. uh, about China. Right. So, like I said, they're <sighs> they're following their dreams and they're able to. With Father's uh, Day coming up this weekend, this will air after Father's Day. It's certainly a lot of pride. I'm, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. Of, uh, yeah. Nachas, as they yes, say. Yes, exactly. I, around the South Ward. Yeah, well, exactly. So I want to just circle back for a minute because you hit on it earlier how immediately you picked up this, you know, and all the all the moves that Bruce did. And you quoted this somewhere, and it might have been on your Max Mondays, but it was just too good to not bring up, and that Bruce sets the tempo and your job is to hold it. Yeah. Just expand on that a little bit because that, I think that 
in many ways defines the magic of the E Street Band right there. Well, he's the band leader and he's the vocalist. Right. And he knows from night to night where he wants to put it, let's say. Mm -hmm. And he's very good with that. The drummer's job is to provide the architecture to whether it's a song. In my case, my specialty is three minute rock songs, mm -hmm. you know, or the jamming comes in handy when I was playing the old style, like Kitty's Back, right. and, you know, the more extended, e Street Shuffle, of, uh, yeah. you know, more classically mm -hmm. oriented stuff, right. long sections. But yeah, it's my job to provide, I liken it to being the white line down the middle of the road. And in any band, I mean, you know, it's not about metronomic time, it's about making it feel good and keeping it within certain limits. And the one thing I do know how to do is to play Bruce Springsteen's songs. And I had a very interesting experience two, two years ago, the summer of 18, he invited me up to put drums on what became like 40 something songs. And he was hardly there. I, mm -hmm. He was there a little bit, but I worked with Ron Anello, mm -hmm. his uh, producer, right. on uh, replacing drum machines, in some cases, other drummers. Mm -hmm. And it was fascinating because Ron got me out of being the way I typically play on uh, Bruce songs, which is what Bruce wants, right. obviously, and the bigger, you know, more bombastic drummer. Right, right. And that was very interesting because it, it, it was uh, a bit of a challenge, and I love a challenge, mm -hmm. so, you know, to play something outside my bag, so to speak. Yeah. Well, and Bruce just but, announced on radio the other day that something special's coming with, with a lot of different music, so I'm hoping some of those songs will... Oh, it that. probably is. I yeah. mean, I, I did all sorts right. of... A lot of unreleased songs. Oh, I, I did this there's this rockabilly record he did, <laughs> apparently. That, wow. You know, I think he did it with, a, with a, like a Lindrum drum machine. Did like, he have but, Gary Talon on that? I know Gary loves rockabilly. I remember seeing the show down, it, down the street did, at the Stone Pony. He said, wow, this needs the Mighty Max yes. touch, you know, and <laughs> then he walked out. And so I did a bunch of... I don't know what's coming out, but... Yeah. Uh, uh, it's above my pay grade, but mm -hmm. I did a lot of songs in a lot of different styles. And he's always, I mean, that's the job. He goes over in there and records, mm -hmm. goes to a studio and he makes records. He doesn't know if he makes records. Mm -hmm. He records he the just songs, records songs, see if they turn into a record. Right. What about rituals? I mean, here we are at Danny's Gallery, and I know it's a podcast, but for any of the people that get to see video of this, behind me is a wonderful picture that Danny Clinch took with you your hands need all in ice. Um, and I believe we talked to Danny earlier, that was taken during the rising rehearsals around the corner from here uh, at the Paramount Theater. But listen, I, I spent a lot of time, I don't know if I saw maybe 35 shows on that last tour, and many of them, I don't know how I survived the four hours, and I would look at you and I would think, my God, how do you do it? Well, I'm built You don't for get it. a break. No, you don't get a break. You, the, the drummer doesn't get a break. I mean, well, this drummer doesn't. Yeah. Some drummers right. do. This, yeah, exactly. I can be honest with you, you yeah. know, you do 100 shows, you wait for those acoustic rendition uh, yeah. <laughs> songs. Yeah, maybe it's time to play uh, Nebraska, Bruce, the whole, the whole album. <laughs> it really comes down to willpower. Yeah. And staying in shape. I mean, obviously right. staying well, in shape. Exactly. You have to stay in shape, and it's willpower. And I know physically my body, just physically, is adapted to that kind of stress. I guess that's how I earned my nickname, you know? Mm -hmm. and the other thing is I have to be able to play longer than him because he can decide when to stop. Right. I can't. And he's got tremendous strength, discipline, willpower, lung power. And, you know, it's really remarkable. It's mm -hmm. been, uh, for all of us in the E Street Band, it's not just whatever the sort of things you might think were the uh, gains from it, but the life lessons are invaluable and many. 
from being in that experience with all the guys. Life lessons from everyone. Mm -hmm. But, you know, particularly with Bruce, because you see how hard he worked. And particularly in the beginning, when it was mostly chaotic most of the time, how he fought against forces that were literally trying to destroy him. And I don't mean external forces like the business side of the music business, the racial side of the music business, which unfortunately, as we all know, still continues to this day, but in the 70s was even more prevalent. So a lot of pressure to do it his way. So I kind of, drummers are often sitting back and, and watching the other guys figuring out the chords or writing right. the music, you know. And, and so it, I was an observer yeah. too. Sure. And, in and the learned a lot. And in the studio, in the great Tom Zimney films that he's done, including the recent Letters to You film, watching the four, the core, I guess, I don't know, and this is not an insult to anyone else in the band, but, but you know, watching you and Gary and Roy and Steven learn Bruce's songs that quickly. I mean, that's the real deal, that you guys put that record together in, you know, yeah, a, uh, a week. The letter to you. Uh, and, there, uh, and there's some tough songs there. Oh, I mean, if were, I was the yeah. priest, I mean, I was like, you know, it's like the band, you know, LeVon Helm was going to walk in at that point. Well, you <laughs> know, you, you, you hope that you've, that you've developed certain skills through your musical career. My experience with TV necessitated right. having to really learn how to read and write drum music for me. Mm -hmm. I don't think I get an A in music composition class, mm -hmm. but it works for me. Yeah. Although I'm excellent at reading Jimmy Vivino's charts. He writes excellent, very dense charts. But you know, you do that for 15, 16 years, day after day, so that helps. Mm -hmm. But also, you know, you mentioned uh, Janie Needs a Shooter or, yeah. or uh, some of the, yeah. the Priest. Yeah. Like for those songs, okay, now I've got to play like I did in 1978, but better. <laughs> I got to put myself back in that right. that space, that, that mental musical space, yeah. which I'm able to do. I think everybody was able to do it. Right. And then go into Burning Train, which is just, yeah, you know. You know, one thing we really worked on in, in the beginning, and it's, you see it in a couple of the documentaries where we used to actually rehearse, was an amazing amount of time spent on analyzing parts. Not only parts, but frequencies where your parts would be heard. Not so much on the drums, but dual keyboards, like staying out of each other's way. And the sound post the first two records kind of evolved out of that, of being aware where everything was. Gary and I, for example, Gary Talent, mm -hmm. we never really ever discussed like locking in, you know, like you read in all the drummer and keyboard magazines. I don't think we ever discussed that. We just, just play. And the interesting thing about Bruce and the E Street Band, unlike most bands I've ever been in, or played with, is that we don't play with each other. We all play with him. And that lends a certain, a little roller skating, you know, you're kind of like going up on edge a little bit. And in fact, you mentioned Sirius Radio. I live in Florida, I don't drive that much. Everything's pretty pretty close. I don't take long drives like I right. used to in New Jersey. So, but I'll listen to Sirius whenever I'm in the car and I listen to some of the stuff. And I noticed back, in the 70s when we played everything so fast. There was a certain charm to playing that fast, but it was also very, very tight. And what was the, I said to myself, what's the difference compared to like sometimes when I hear now? On those days, we were set up within probably 10 feet of each other. So we were right on top of hmm. each other in these clubs, in these clubs. and small right, places. Right. You're, go you're going from the bottom line, the Roxy, 
to all of a sudden slaying Castle, you know, with 500,000 people. Well, and, and even now, <laughs> or, you know, where even the stage now, is yeah, much bigger, right, right. we're much further apart. Oh, huge stages. So, yeah. you know, there could be 40 feet between Roy and, and Bruce, right. and he's on a 45-degree angle. Right. So the visual thing is yeah. quite different, the spatial right. thing. That takes some getting used to. Even when we started playing arenas, we were still sort of kind of toward the center of the stage. And then when, when we started using 17 cameras to project the show, right. everything spread out a little bit so you could get your one shot, your two shot, your group shot. So it became a little bit more like TV for me. Right. You but know? speaking of that, as you said, you're laser focused 100% on Bruce because you have to be because he pulls more audibles than any NFL quarterback's ever done. Oh, my God. Um, yeah. You just never know what's coming next. And I've been at so many shows to, to witness that and blown away. And I'm always wondering, how did these guys figure it out? Fear. Um, yeah, fear. Fear. Yeah. It's a great motivator. Right. But if you don't, but with the larger setups, you know, in the last tour when Bruce is, you know, in center stage doing 10th Avenue freeze out or whatever it is, or, or Hungry Heart being carried, you need to see the signals. How do you pull that off now? Well, that's a great question. I have a, there's one camera dedicated to Bruce wherever he goes, even if he goes behind me or sometimes when he runs off the side of the stage. He's out of my direct view. Right. So I have a little TV monitor. Ah, okay. So if he goes to the other end, like in the middle of the stadium, usually I can see him because he's on a platform and he'll give cues from out there. And there's sometimes they're subtle. So I, I'm able to work between real time and this little camera I have, right? I mean, it's a little video mm -hmm. screen. Sure. It's like a, it's about the size of a phone. Yeah, but it's, it's enough, enough for you to, see. to when he's, you know, you may hear him say, take it max, but you kind of need the. This is my feed. Yeah. It only goes to me. So if I'm playing and, and, you know, I used to be able to turn around. Right. Before multiple back surgeries. So now I've got, whenever he goes behind me, I'm, I'll be looking at him. Then I switch to the, <laughs> the camera. Exactly. So I've, you know, technology. Last East Street related uh, question, but I got to ask it. I mean, I, I, we all, everyone has favorites and it's always a Sophie's choice, but for you, from your perspective and drums, do you have two or three that, God, I hope he puts in the set list that maybe he doesn't occasionally, he puts in occasionally or something that. Oh, songs? That, yeah, songs. That we don't play that often? Or? They don't play that often. Yeah. Or, or some that you do play that often that you just feel so good about playing that every, you have your own favorite. Well, I do, I, I always say when I'm asked that question, Ramrod, right. because Ramrod is the simplest beat mm -hmm. in the world. Right. But it's been described in print as my sexiest beat. Mm -hmm. And I like that. Yeah. Uh, I've oh, seen is. other drummers, backbeat drummers, friendly beat. Right. This is sexy. It's, it's about where you place the, 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 the two and the four, mm -hmm. which is based on where you put the one and the three beat. And anyway, the reason I love it is because I love that song. Right. And to me, that's the epitome of what I do. That's Wild Weekend. Yeah. And all those songs that I learned how to play drums. Wipe I Out, maybe. It's almost. Sort of, well, you know. <laughs> Wipe Out, but particularly, yeah. the, the, you know, uh, listen to the groove on uh, Let's Dance. Right. Which is Earl Palmer, the drummer. Sure. So that stuff. And if you're in a, a stadium full of people and you play that beat, and you see them dancing, it's irresistible. So that's one fun song. Yeah. Another fun one for me is Candy's Room because I started with that, right? Yep. And about maybe three seconds into it, you get this big roar of recognition uh. from the audience. So for that split second, it's Max Weinberg and the E Street Band. Yeah, and it is. It's the only it time is. in the whole night where it's like, 
you know. Oh, it is. It, it where I hear that roar from me. <laughs> it, 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 well, there's a lot of other roars for you, Max, but that that, that, like, that uh, moment. But you know, I, I would add roulette maybe to that. Yeah, roulette. It just because of the beginning. The beginning well, is just so. On that song, yeah. he gave me that lick, but the way he wanted me to play it was not drumistically correct. It made it difficult because you know normally it was it's. But it was so fast, and he wanted me to. He didn't want me to hit the small. He was very specific. When you play that, don't hit the 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 small tom. We don't call it the rack tom, or the kick drum, bass drum, small tom. Don't hit it with your left hand. Do it with your right hand. So bum bum. I had to go like this, which drumistically it took time to get my. So I have to play very much in front of the beat to make the time. It's very fast. It's about the fastest song we play. Yeah, what's that? And, they, and you know, it came together very quickly. It was a, like a morning rehearsal. Right. He wrote it very quickly and got everybody over there by like ten o'clock, mm -hmm. which was in the middle of the night for all That's of us, including himself. Such a great song. And such, we recorded it that night. It was the first song we recorded for the sessions that would become the River album. But uh, yeah, you do get that, mm -hmm. you know. <laughs> and, like that's a song where there's no margin for error. No, because it's so fast and it's so you got to stay so on top of it. And the ending, I never know where he's going to give me the cutoff. It goes It could be anywhere, and he he could be in dark. Sometimes I mentioned this to the light guy. Don't turn the lights off completely because he's still giving cues. That's true. And and sometimes you got to really squint to see what he's doing. So. There are those moments, but you try to not let them see you sweat. And JFK and many other philosophers before him often said that courage is grace under pressure. And that's what you try to exhibit when you're on that stage. But the interesting thing, if you were about us performing, if you were dropped on the stage, the first thing you noticed would be how relaxed it is. It's incredibly relaxed. And it may not look that way, but it's very, it's energetic, but it's very, very relaxed. Mm. Well, speaking of relaxed, before we get to Conan and we'll wrap things up, but one of the best-selling albums of 50 million plus is Bad Out of Hell. Yeah. All right? And many of us know you were the drummer on three or four of the main songs on this record. Or as referred to, yeah. we refer to it in my family as the one that got away. <laughs> I got $1,000 to play on that record. Oh, Max. Oh, my God. Yeah, then they wanted me to play on the second, so I got considerably more. Good. I'm glad, because this is just one of the most, I mean, you know, iconic albums there are. The songs are iconic. Todd Rundgren's producing, and yeah. and, and we just lost Jim Steinman recently, yeah. who obviously did this. And you also played, I think you played on Total Eclipse of the Heart, Bonnie yeah. Tyler. I mean, so, you know, which he wrote. I mean, well, yeah. Jim, you know, we got more that than $1,000 for that. Yeah, the fee went up a little bit. Okay. But we had a thing going there in the 70s and early 80s. Actually, I, play, I played on Total Eclipse of the Heart and Air Supplies, Making Love Out of Nothing at All, which at one point were the number one and two singles on the sort of top 200, sure. right? Or top 100. They're essentially the same song. Yeah. I also have the distinction of playing drums on the only non-successful Barbra Streisand single. <laughs> and how many people can say that? That's true. That's true. Right? That's That's... May, uh, it was called Left in the Dark, I think it was called. And it was not a, it was a Jim Steinman song. Oh. And Is it like not even, you can't even stream it? It's just that? You probably could oh, okay. stream it. Okay. You, you know. At uh, least it's out there somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> so it's 1989. You and Becky had a wonderful dinner. You're walking around New York City. A giant redhead on the corner. I don't know. 
what he is. I don't know if he's seven feet, but he's, I've, I've met him a, a number of times, including at the last L.A. Sports Arena show backstage and had an interesting conversation. Conan O'Brien, you meet him on the corner. It's a long story, and I've heard you talk about it on Conan's podcast, but just kind of how did it all come together so quickly? Because boom, before you know it, you've got this band together, and it's 16 years. Well, it was actually later than that. Uh, the East Street Band broke up in 89, and right. I was uh, kind of out on the tiles, <laughs> as the <laughs> song goes, right. for a long time. I didn't play at all. I was in business. I was in the record business uh, in uh, the shore here. Mm -hmm. There was a, an outfit called the Musical Heritage Society. It was a mail-order record club, mm -hmm. one of the largest in the world. And that was interesting. I worked there for three years, and I really learned business principles. Was that like the ones you send the penny to and you mm -hmm. got 15 cassettes you know, uh -huh. whatever, or eight tracks going way back? Yeah. Get them hooked on yeah. a penny and then, you know, <laughs> cash cow. Exactly. This is pre-internet and pre-computers right. doing that. So it was all mail order. Yeah. Becky and I were in New York and we decided to get a bite to eat at the mm -hmm. uh, Carnegie Deli. Right. And there's a story behind that one I won't go into. Mm -hmm. but after dinner, we're walking down 7th Avenue and we get to the corner of 7th and 54th Street. There used to be a place called the Oyster Bar right, right. on the corner. Mm -hmm. And this tall, redheaded guy holding a paper bag is standing waiting for the light to turn to go to the, which was the Riga Hotel, mm -hmm. which is the Riga 54th Royal, Street. Yeah. Riga Royal, right. So I said to Becky, that's, that's Conan O'Brien. And she said, who's Conan O'Brien? I said, <laughs> well, he's the, he's the guy who, he's about 30 feet away. He's right. the guy that's taken him for, for Letterman. And she said, how do you know that? I said, well, he was on Tom Snyder's cable show the other night, and I recognized him. He's like really tall. He's got this big pompadour mm -hmm. hair. And she said, well, go over and talk to him. You know, congratulate him at least. So I go over, hey, Conan. The light turns. He stops. Comes back on the curb. I say, hey, it's uh, Max Weinberg from the E Street Band, just to put myself in context. Right, exactly. Hey, congratulations mm -hmm. on the show. It's a fantastic uh, career thing, opportunity, and blah, blah, blah. And he's very nice. Mm -hmm. And I said, gee, what are you doing for music? He goes, well, we got some ideas. Why? Do you have any ideas? Mm. Which is classic Conan O'Brien because he doesn't care where the ideas come from as long as they're the best ideas. With his comedy, with he's a great editor. He's egoless. If you got a better idea, that's his thing. So suddenly it was like, oh, man, pitch time. I'm pitching my ass off. <laughs> and I always carried a copy of this record I produced for Joe D'Elia called Killer Joe. And it was sort of a card, right? <laughs> right. And I said, well, I produced this. This is what I've got going, right. you know? So he said, well, you ought to, you know, if you're really interested, call this guy. Mm -hmm. Called this guy, Jim Pitt, who was the music booker. There was no show yet. Right, had, right. You know, this is only, this is May of 93. Mm -hmm. So I had about half a dozen meetings with various levels of people. And then I get a call at my office at this record club in Ocean Township. Well, we've really liked what you had to say, we'd like to hear the band. I said, uh, okay, fantastic. When do you want to hear us? Well, it was Wednesday. How about Friday? Ah, oh, gee, you know, everybody has, you know, other gigs. Can I call you back? And, you know, so I got off the phone and I was very specific about that. I never said I had a band. I only said <laughs> I had a great idea for a band, right? I had this record, which was Jump Blues, which Joe D'Elia actually turned me on to which was, of course, the precursor between sort of swing, combo swing and, and rock mm -hmm. uh, in the 40s and early 50s. You know, that was my pitch. I got this jump blues thing. And Buster Poindexter mm -hmm. was out there doing that kind of thing. So I called him back. I said, gee, uh, 
Jim, you know, a couple of my guys have gigs. What, do you think we could uh, audition for you first thing Monday through the, after the weekend? He goes, let me see. He calls me back. I worked it out. So, all right, now I had to put a band together. Right. So I called. Everybody was away, away till Sunday. Right. Sure. I knew Jimmy Probably. Vivino a little yeah. bit, who's a phenomenal talent, yeah. guitarist, vocalist, mm-hmm. and arranger. Right. Which is, I knew I'd need that. Mm-hmm. Plus, I, I like him. So, you know, that was easy. And his brother, Jerry, comes along with him right. wherever they go. Exactly. And he's an amazing horn player. Mm-hmm. So suddenly, I was able to put that band together by Sunday afternoon. Jimmy and I met up Sunday morning. They'd given me sort of a template for five kind of musical motifs that they wanted to hear. They wanted kind of like a Warner Brothers cartoony thing. No real jazz, no rock, no funk. Arsenio had a funk band. Mm -hmm. You can't play Peter Gunn because they all came from Saturday Night Live. Jay Smith played Peter Gunn every single Saturday. So they got sick of that song. So they had very specific things. I got it, got it all. Mm -hmm. So Jimmy and I together, I said, "This we need something bouncy. We kind of like, we're an old Broadway duo. Hey, I got it, how about this? And he played the piano, yeah, that's good. So we had these five things together. The band came in that afternoon, the rest of the guys, including Rusty Cloud from Johnny's, Southside Johnny's band. Right, who, right. Unfortunately, only a budget for seven guys. He was the eighth guy. And he had a riff. It was a New Orleans kind of second line thing. And we rehearsed these, these five things. Everybody was auditioning at SIR Studios, which as uh, we all know, it was a sort of padded mm-hmm. kind of soundstage place. I said, you know, do you mind if we audition at the old Carroll Studios, which is on 39th Street by Port Authority, which looked like a 1940s TV studio. Mm-hmm. Had the black and green linoleum, the pegboard, whitewashed walls. Because, uh, re- you know, I, from what they were telling me, they were into nostalgia. Right. So then I told everybody in the band to wear the most outrageous Hawaiian-type shirt they could. I had the graphics department make up a bass drum that Becky had kind of sketched out that just had in big letters M-A-X mm-hmm. with a little kind of diagonal, right. kind of like the old jazz thing. Sure. And I had a little stage built with me on a riser, so I was higher than mm-hmm. everybody, which came a, became a running joke. Mm-hmm. I always had to be higher yeah. than everybody else. <laughs> you know, there like, were a lot of running jokes. On it's sort of like you see me, see me walking up yeah. the dock. <laughs> The drum riser had to elevate me above the band. So nobody knew anybody. Conan and and, and Robert Smigel and Jim Pitt, they all walked in. Nobody knew who they were. And I hadn't told anybody what it was. I didn't want it to get out. Did our thing. The first two songs were like, "Eh, we played them well. I don't know whether they went over or not. And I did not want to play the second line beat. It was a little too rock. I didn't want to be associated with rock. And Becky, when I played her the tape, the night before, my wife said, that's the best thing you're doing. That little second line. Da, 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 da. It was like Pocky Way, which right. is a meters tune. She said, play that. I said, I don't want to play that. That's too much like rock. I think you should play it. Well, I'm not going to play it. So meanwhile, the first two songs were like, well, yeah, we didn't get much of a reaction. So I went into, I said, Becky liked that song. So I started the beat. Da, 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 right? And I said, we called it New Orleans. Mm-hmm. And we got into that and Conan stood up and started dancing like his crazy kind of dance. (laughs) So if it hadn't been for Becky arguing with me to play that song and me realizing, shit, I got to do something on this third tune. Amazing how wives are always right. That's what got us the gig. (laughs) And 
And that's what actually got us the gig. And and because uh, he 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 told me later it was the first time he was so happy to get this job. Right. He never made any demands. It was the first time he went to Lorne Michaels mm-hmm. and said, "Got to have this band." Yeah. And that goes into another right. whole story, which I'm saving for my book. But yeah. Well, let's listen. So that was uh, 16, years 16 years later. Years. The sketches, the stare, the you know, I mean, the drama with the Tonight Show. And I will just tell people if you haven't seen those shows. Go on YouTube and just just Google Max Weinberg sketches. There, I, I can't even. Some are not suitable for. I don't know what not suitable for mo- most things, but just. Oh, today oh, you couldn't do anything. We yeah, did. the oh, beauty right. of late night television, as Bruce says, and I'll add to that. Max is in Hawaii Five O. You've made cameos in Blue Bloods. Yeah, um, I mean, and, and uh, my shows. my mother loves Blue Bloods and, and constantly reminds me when, when you're on. Quickly, I just want to mention Hawaii Five-0 because I found something the other night where you were playing with the Ventures and you're uh-huh. playing the Hawaii Five-0 theme. Yeah. What was that all about? Well, they And were, Wipeout, I guess. Uh, and, and Wipeout. Yeah. They were doing, I forget what year it was, but their 25th anniversary for, mm-hmm. it was a document, sort of a documentary for yeah. MTV. Right. And they asked a bunch of people to play with them. Mm-hmm. And Mel Taylor had been someone I, looked to as a kid. Sure. He was the Avengers' second drummer. Howie Johnson was the first who played on Walk, Don't Run. Right. Mel was with him for forever. Right. And nice guy. And I remember they we did it on uh, down near NYU mm-hmm. in a studio. And who was it? It was a Marky? The drummer for the Ram- Ramones. Oh, okay. Was there also. Mm-hmm. And we we did those two tunes. Uh, I yeah. did. I did yeah. Wipeout. Wipeout and Hawaii 5 And Hawaii Five O, which and- was... Fun, right? And you then know, you got to appear on an episode. Play with the ventures. Which is, People uh, exactly. to get the ventures. Well, not my age, but yeah. <laughs> you know, the ventures were basically the Beatles without vocals. Yeah. So two quick things, because I know you have this passion for the space industry. You got very close with someone who's been on a number of space shuttle oh, adventures. Spent more time right, than uh, right, Commander right, Jim right. Weatherby. Absolutely. Right, right. So the real question is, Jeff Bezos is looking for somebody to go up in space with him. It's only 28 million, Max. Yeah, I'd have to hit up uh, some wealthy friends I know. Yeah. You know, I don't know about the efficacy of going up on your company's first try, and you're the owner of the company. (laughs) So if it was between his company and Elon Musk's company, they've had a little bit more of a track record. Yeah. I would definitely love to do it. Yeah, that was the next question. Oh, I would do it in a second. You know, but my friend who was a a space shuttle commander, and at the time, logged mm-hmm. more time in space until these extended periods than any other human. Jim Weatherby has really gave our, me and my family tremendous access to the program. And one of the things he, he did mention to me is people have absolutely no idea how every second it's so incredibly dangerous that anything can happen. There's a lot of redundancy, but it's not for the, the weak hearted. But... He's been very kind, and one thing I did, so he, he was the first astronaut to do a MTV hookup. And this, is a, this happened at the same time I had the Killer Joe record. Mm-hmm. So he called me, he said, send me the record, and if, I, if this thing comes off, I'm gonna try to promote the record. So it was a CD, but it was the old CDs with the big packaging, right. the, the cardboard. Sure. And so he took it up, and he's doing this hookup with it. Well, what are you listening to? Well, I'm glad you asked that because at the moment I'm listening to this fantastic record, Max Weinberg's <laughs> Killer Joe. And uh, he starts promoting it. And he's a very shy guy. Yeah. 
uh, we starts promoting it, which was unbelievable. I got the first extraterrestrial. I was going to say from, this is before satellite right. radios. This is MTV. When the aliens land, they're going to be looking for you. Well, like, then, he, we then he lets go of it, yeah. and it just floats <laughs> in the air, right? After Danny Federici mm -hmm. died, we gave Jim Danny's record, mm -hmm. and Danny was a space uh, fanatic as right. well. And he took Danny's right. He didn't, but he gave it to a, a crew to take up on a, a space shuttle mission. Mm -hmm. And they took a picture of Danny's record floating. It's a beautiful picture. Uh -oh. It's floating right by the window. Mm -hmm. And you see Earth in the back. You know, you can see Earth. It's not, it's not a big ball because you're right. not that high. 300 miles. But you see Danny's album and earth and, oh, that's uh, you know, beautiful it was something that danny federici yeah uh, would have really loved because oh, he was I'm really sure. into it i'm sure so the jukebox show let's talk about that tomorrow night locally uh, here in new york It'll be city past news yeah that'll be past news but i'm going so i'm i'm excited about it but the real news is you're going to be playing with the jukebox band this summer and this fall yeah and the concept for those that haven't seen this show is just well, I'll let you describe it because it is unique to anything I've ever seen, but it is more, it, I mean, it's, listen, we all have great times at E Street Band and Rolling Stones and Goo Goo Dolls. We, we, love, we love all of our concerts, but this is so unique. Well, this basically grew out of my uh, love of the records I grew up with as a kid and learned how to play drums by playing two. And I was one of those guys who would sit there for hours with all the bass off so I could like figure out all the parts that I knew, mm -hmm. at least drum parts. And in those days you could do that. And so I was doing a show in Chicago, April of 2017 with the, what I call the jukebox, because it's all basically cover songs. And in the jukebox, the original jukebox, and I have subs now, but are the three members of the Weaklings. Right. Who's everybody's favorite band from mm -hmm. around here. Bob Berger, Glenn Burtnick, mm -hmm. John Marjavi. Right. And we were gonna do a set and people were, wanted more. And right. We, and we didn't have any songs. We were done. <laughs> so I said, all right, well, what do you want to hear? Well, you know, Under My Thumb. Mm -hmm. All right, we can play Under My Thumb. Mm -hmm. So then we played for another two hours of just requests from this audience right. at this place called Space in Evanston, Illinois. Mm -hmm. And it was really fun, and it really involved the audience. Well, what do you I want to hear Glory Days. Well, are you ready to sing it? Mm -hmm. Will you sing it with us? You know, it was a bunch of fraternity guys, so they all came up. So it was like my manager said, that was fantastic. I mean, the first set, yeah, yeah, we've heard those songs, but if you can do that, so we've done about 225 of these shows. COVID, of course, stopped everybody. Right. And a lot of the places I play probably are not opening again. Bigger rock clubs, small sure. performing right. arts places. It's really fun because we draw from a list of about a little over 200 songs. The guys are great because they're really detailed. You know, mm -hmm. they're like, they'll argue for hours of right. what, what chord that is. So what I try to do is play the right tempo of these songs because bands always play these songs. When you play Midnight Hour, it's a slow song. Mm -hmm. And also all the groups that did it originally, they for their Vegas-type shows, they sped up all these songs. I like to play the original record. And I say, you know, if you come to see this show, you're going to hear those songs played at manly tempos. These are, <laughs> these are the, the play them like a man, you know? Because it, it takes a man to play a slow tempo. <laughs> Al Jackson was the greatest slow tempo drummer of all of all time, but so I'm doing 45 shows between now and New Year's. That's great. And it works out to, you know, two, three, four a month, right. you know, 
A lot of them are outside this summer. They're right. all over the place. Yeah, I know you're. I think you're finishing up here at Red Bank in Camp, at Camp yeah, Basie right Theater, which will, which will be great. And it's uh, again, as someone who's been there and and made the mistake of saying, Max, play fire, and Max said, "All right, Mitch, come on up and sing." And uh, you can find that on YouTube. And I apologize. If well, here, it didn't here's go my that business well. philosophy yeah. of my music career. Yeah. So you know, when you're a kid, you want to be in a band, right? And then you become someone like. A Bruce. I want to have a band. And then you get to be sort of my age. I want to hire a band and I'm a drummer. So what I do, when two years ago, was it two years ago? It was a New Year's Eve of, mm -hmm. I got this great gig 10 minutes from my house, mm -hmm. the Boca Resort, New Year's Eve gig. I generally don't play. They made me literally an offer I couldn't refuse. So they wanted a big kind of Sly Stone meets James Brown meets Bruno Mars and all mm. their descendants. <laughs> and it's songs that I've heard, but it's not my generation. So, okay, I went out and I found the best band that was that description from Miami. And I paid their drummer to stay home for the night. Mm -hmm. So I found that it's economically a better model to go get an existing band who knows all these songs <laughs> and have me learn them and write them right. out right? Taylor Swift, you know, shake it up. Mm -hmm. So I'm, which is what people want to dance to. Right. So I'm going to, if a gig calls for, okay, you got to play, you know, current pop. I'm not going to try to foist my 60s sensibility. Right. Because I've noticed that it's very difficult for young mm -hmm. people today to dance to Motown records. Right. They just, it's not their beat. They want to hear that constant bass drum. Yeah. So that's the thing. I go out with the jukebox, I literally, we have no crew. I set the drums up. Otherwise it would be, you know, drum, setting the drums up is the most mechanical thing I know how to do. Putting in the tubes, right. and getting them all just right. Mm -hmm. And I'm happy to have someone else do it when someone else is paying for them. Right. But if I have to pay for it, I'm gonna do it myself. And that's my business philosophy. That's a terrific <laughs> philosophy. Well, we're gonna end on this because it's a question I've asked for 99 shows, so got to end it here. And I always credit Tim Ferriss from Tribe of Mentors. It was one of many questions he had in his book. So, Max, a giant billboard is available for you. It could say anything, okay? It's your message to the world. What would you put on that billboard and why? What would I put on that billboard and why? I would put a calm down. <laughs> Because that's what we all need to I think do. That, I, I, honestly, that's today. Wow, what Calm a great answer! Down. I thought I've heard them all. That's that's terrific. That's so true. Uh, well, Max, thank you so much for well, being here. It's my pleasure. Good to be with you. Know, you. I hope I haven't bored you listening to me wrap around. For, no, this has been yeah. great. I want to first of all again thank you for for being here. I'm looking forward to to seeing you tomorrow night. Of course, thank everybody at Danny Clinch's Transparent Gallery. If you haven't visited here in Asbury Park, get here. Find Tina. She will show you everything in this gallery. I have to thank Tina for everything that she's done. It is it's much more than a photo gallery. Trust me. There's furniture. Oh, you, there's I will second yeah. that. You got to come down to Danny Clinch's in Asbury Park. You walk outside, you can see Convention Hall. This is unbelievable. This is my first time here because I don't live in New Jersey anymore. And if where I live in Florida had something like this, it'd be packed. Well, it's pretty packed today. We've got yeah. a nice group of people here. 
come down to Danny Clinch's. You're going to love this place. <laughs> well, I second, I second that emotion. And I just want to thank Brett and Chris for, uh, and Zach for the, all the tech help and Resonate Recording, who's done a great job editing the, the first 99 episodes and now 100, 101, and 102. No, I'm joking. We're going to keep it as 100. It's been a great ride, and I really appreciate everybody that's listened to Financially Speaking. We'll be back. We're going to take a little break and come back in the fall with some more great episodes. And as we say every year or every episode, when saving for your financial future, which Max I certainly hope includes an E Street Band tour next year. And I know <laughs> you're not going to break that news today, but we've kind of he heard Stephen and Bruce kind of hint towards that. So we certainly all have our, our fingers crossed for that. Well, there's a lot of music to be made and played. And as long as you're healthy and can rise to the occasion, I don't see why not. It's certainly fun. And having experienced what we've all experienced over the last 15 or 16 months, wouldn't it be nice to have a shot of Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band as an antidote to the just the unique, awful period we just are coming out of, it seems. And, uh, you know, again, that's above my pay grade to know what Bruce has in store for the rest of us. I don't ask, and it's worked out for 47 years, you know. Mm -hmm. I just... Look, hey, I'll say to Becky, look outside, look at a bus. Mm -hmm. See ya. <laughs> It'll be the greatest booster shot we could all have. So thank you again, Max. Mitch, Appreciate pleasure. it. It's all been right. a pleasure. Max, would you do us a favor and maybe play us out? And I might have Danny Clinch. Uh, Danny Clinch is here, I think. Yeah, and he is. Come on, oh, jump yeah. up on stage well, I, with you. I just haven't noticed you have a drum set. We just happen here. to have a drum set here. With so, apologies to DW Drums. Yep, yeah, okay. But uh, yeah, you know. All right, great. We'll play something. 